I want to thank my sponsor, Viva. Viva, thank you so much for making this show possible. Viva is here to change the game. They have electronic regulatory documents for sites for free with no commitment, no contract. I just signed up my site, Yuma Clinical Trials. No contract needed, nothing signed. They they just approve your email address and that's it. You're up and running with an electronic regulatory system, which is a great way if you haven't gotten into electronic anything yet. You need to consider it. It's it's free. Over 450 sponsors are using Viva for their back-end stuff. Electronic signatures here, electronic uh, delegation of authorities log, all for free. Viva is going to keep giving sites free stuff because they're very site-centric. They, they know that if they help empower the sites, even more sponsors are going to use their paid products on their end. They are the sponsors after all, so they pay for things. And they understand that making sites take control of their electronic systems is a huge first step. It's a huge commitment for sites, even for something that's free. And they're here to make it easy, and they're playing the long game. And anyways, go check it out underneath the video or the show notes below. Viva Site Vault. Welcome back to Biotech IQ, everyone. This is your host, Amon Rivera. And today on the show, I have an interesting guest. I have Dan Sfera on the show, who, if you recall, um, had me on his YouTube channel, which I appreciate that he graciously had me on the show. And for those of you that are uh, listeners of Dan Sfera, What's going on, Guru Nation? Welcome to the hey, show, Dan. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be on your show, and it was good to have you on. It's always good to hear from um job recruiter perspective, uh, especially for these small biotechs, which actually are going through um, some hard times right now, <laughs> the smaller mm-hmm. companies. But I think that's um, tempor- very temporary and... Uh, just the beginning. I mean, we're on the wave of like insane innovations in the space and uh, excited, excited for that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely an interesting time. Um, I shifted, you know, I was working as an independent contractor in recruiting um, when you and I first talked, but um, I personally uh, shifted. I joined a, a larger organization called GQR and um, pretty interesting because like they're very, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with like some of the people that work there on my team because like they have such a deep knowledge of the industry. And um, so, you know, it's definitely something we talk about all the time. Um, there's emails going around on my team all the time of like, hey, such such company just did layoffs. Of course, as recruiters, kind of a little bit scavenger. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, let's go see because we still have clients that are hiring. Um, it's just definitely taking right. a lot more hustle and ingenuity to get get those people that are hiring right so yep yep for sure um yeah absolutely i think that's something that's going to be more important for the biotechs especially the smaller biotechs going forward is taking more control of their operation when, when it comes to clinical research at least and that's that's something i plan to help biotechs out with uh during the next phase of my career but still working on my last site that I will probably ever have. Never say never, but it's so far planned to be the last site. Yeah. What's funny is you're talking about that and I've been watching some of your videos and I'm actually thinking about getting into site ownership, which is something we'll get into here in a little bit. We start talking about that. Um, So definitely finding it very interesting. And and it's, it's something that I, you know, you and I were talking before this. It's, I like to, I've been thinking of it as where the rubber meets the road. Um, you know, connecting the the drug development company, you know, to to actually getting things to the patients. And so um, before we jump into that conversation, though, all of all of you out there on YouTube um, or if you're listening on the podcast, whether it's, you know, myself or Dan show, um, don't forget to like subscribe, share the video, um, get the word out there. And um, if you are you know, a company that's developing treatment and looking for specialized talent, you know where to find me. I'm on LinkedIn, um, Amon Rivera, and um, Dan's on there as well. And um, we'll, we're going to have some a good conversation today. So, yeah. yeah. So let's kick this off. So so for those of you listening, Dan um, 
his YouTube channel has some very in-depth knowledge about understanding clinical research from the site perspective. In fact, he uh, helped or, or actually wrote a book called The Comprehensive Guide to Clinical Research. Um, he'll put that up on the screen here. Uh, definitely highly recommend. He also has a YouTube video up on the channel right now um, called the, I think it's the last crash course you'll ever need to clinical research or something like that. If I, yeah, even I, I don't know what it's called, but yeah, the, <laughs> the yeah. only, the only, the only, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Uh, I've been going back and listening to it in chunks because it is long, but for me, it filled a lot of gaps. Um, I've spent my career obviously as a recruiter, but working directly with biotech companies. So understanding how they're doing things and how they're developing and how they're coming from discovery. But what, what was missing for me was understanding where the rubber meets the road, right? The clinical research site itself. Um, and so what definitely recommend that you all go listen to that. Mm -hmm. So Dan, tell us a little bit about your background. I want to know, I want to know your story, man. Tell me like, how did you get into clinical research? Where'd it all start for you? Uh, yeah, I was a pre-med student. And then I was a pre-pharmacy student. And then I realized I didn't really have a chance because my GPA wasn't great because I took too many advanced classes my freshman and sophomore year and just destroyed my GPA, um, thinking that I can just fast track into med school and without graduating um, college. So I went to University of Arizona ended up just graduating with molecular and cellular biology. I thought I could still find some kind of way to get into DO school at least. Um, so at the time, my dad, my dad is a, a psychiatrist. He's an international medical graduate from Romania. Actually, both my parents are. And my dad got his California license when I was in a junior in high school. Um, so by the time I went to college, I came back, he already had like a private practice with a, another group of physicians and they were fed up with doing research at USC, University of Southern California. So they wanted to do research like private, like start their own site. So they did one. The problem was the lady managing the, the site was basically stealing money and mm. siphoning <laughs> so you have like four doctors that are busy and then a business lady who realizes that no one's paying attention and a lot can go wrong and a lot did but my dad told me hey intern here uh before they found out she was stealing they said intern here and uh you know you might it might look good on your resume um to get to med school and i did intern and within like the first three months, the business started falling apart. So the existing coordinators were quitting because they weren't getting paid. And it's because this lady was stealing money. <laughs> so there was no payroll. So wow. my dad, the doctors like this, you know, they kind of all went their separate ways. My dad was on the hook for the lease and it was still his private practice. So he said, hey, you know, I'm just going to not do research but if you want to do it you can do it i'll be your pi for a year or two until you find another pi otherwise you know go find another job and um i did it because i didn't have any expenses and i just finished college uh didn't have kids or anything so to me it was easy decision i thought worst case you know i have a better chance of becoming a going to med school or I've started learning within that three months about CRA, Clinical Research Associate. And I thought, okay, it's decent paying jobs. Um, I just need some experience. So if nothing else, I'll have some experience on my CV. Um, but I had to like actually financially contribute and all that stuff. So I just took over like the site. There was two existing studies I took over. So I had like a bit of a running start. But as far as learning the the industry i i mean i knew nothing i knew none of the basics that's why i made that video the four hour crash course it was like for my past self and um why i wrote this book actually um for the same reason like I, the audience of most of my videos and the book are me back then uh 
what did I not know? And so that's where that's where the content kind of evolved to I didn't start the content till 2010. So from 2005 till 2010, I was running the site, I started hiring people. I started thinking about different ways to expand the marketing. And um, one of the books I read was Crush It by Gary Vaynerchuk around 09, where yeah. he's, you know, he talked about how he used the uh, YouTube to sell wine. And I thought, yeah. well, why don't I use it to get patients in our studies or at least get studies from drug companies? And I did. It didn't work for that. The audience were different people. The audience were other research sites or people looking to learn about research. So I just like shifted the content for them more or less. Um, and a lot of the content slow, like was the same, like what is an informed consent? What is an IRB? I made these videos to educate patients who were considering research. Well, it turns out the people that were most interested were people wanting to learn what those things are from a career perspective. Uh, so I didn't fight it. You know, I just, I rolled with it and just kind of pivoted the audience to me of five years ago, like back in 2005. And that's, that's where everything kind of took off. I still own sites, just started my latest site, which I think will be my last Yuma clinical trials in Yuma, Arizona. And uh, it's with a partnered with a internal medicine, a dermatologist and a neurologist and a psychiatrist. So we te technically have three sites. Um, and I say it's my last because it's the last site I will, I will be involved with like from the ground up as far as like doing the day-to-day -day operations. Um, I still own another site in San Bernardino, California, but I don't do much other than biz dev for it. So I'll probably still always own a site. Um, just the day-to-day -day things. I think this is my last one because of the explosion in biotech that I'm seeing. And um, we can get into that too, because that's, that's your audience. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, so before we do go to that though, I want to kind of, go back a little bit and talk about some of these things. So you, you kick off your career. Um, you explained obviously how you got into your first site and, um, and then how you launched YouTube and kind of how that's taking you to where you're at now. So you mentioned, so you have Yuma clinical trials, which is, you said has about three, is it three sites? I think you said three sites right now. Yeah. We have three, three PIs. They each have their own office. So we have uh -huh. three sites. Um, each specialist kind of has their own location, their own private practice. So we we partner with all of them uh, on bringing studies. And I've been here for um, a year and a half. And we have, we've done two, we have four ongoing, two more in the pipeline. So uh, just about 10 studies maybe and a year and a half within two years for sure like 10 studies maybe a little more like 12 um which is not bad and hired my third employee recently um so yeah it's it's three sites could could be more depending on the specialists here and the surrounding communities um yeah we could start duplicating specialists based on the different cities that are in this area so you mentioned you mentioned the specialties that it sounds like is it dermatology, neurology, and psychiatry are the three, and then internal yeah. medicine. So like a lot of obesity, diabetes, uh, hypertension, arthritis. Hmm. Basically, yeah. every like the internal medicines are good because they can do everything. They see everyone. Um, mm -hmm. For the more specialized trials, usually like derm and neuro and oncology, they want specialist doctors to be the PIs. Um, but for the more general type of things like diabetes, obesity, asthma, um, cholesterol, hypertension, those could be internal medicine or specialists. Um, but I think internal medicine is the best PI to start with if you're thinking of starting a site because they can do everything and they're also all connected to all the specialists in the community. Yeah. How hands-on do you think someone that's going to start a site, like how hands-on do you think they need to be? You need to be very hands-on. I think, especially if you don't know what you're doing, 
if you do know what you're doing, I still think you need to be very hands-on. Um, I like to train my employees my way and not ways that they've been trained by others. So from the three employees, the first two we've hired, research naive. The last one we hired, almost research naive. She worked for a large um, university of uh, San Diego, uh, UCSD, and she was in the patient recruitment aspect. So she wasn't damaged yet by their, she wasn't indoctrinated by the way they do things, which is basically you do data entry, you do recruitment, you do patient visits. Like we, the way we do studies at my site is everyone does everything uh, and we're generalists. So um, it's, it's more exciting for the employee. It's easier to manage from the employer's perspective um and it's more conducive to i don't know if it, it's more conducive to initial fast growth um it's probably less conducive to managing it long term for stability but i don't think we'll ever streamline it mm. so and then your site out in san bernardino is that also internal medicine or is that a specialist out yeah, there? Yeah, that started as a neurologist uh, who can do a bunch of psych studies as well. So really, it's funny, our bread and butter there is schizophrenia and our PI is a neurologist and they don't usually treat schizophrenics, those are psychiatrists. Well, she's been doing research so long, she's been grandfathered in to our specialty because we actually don't do very good at parkinson's and uh als because she works for um an academic medical center so the patients she treats in her private it's not a private practice so she treats patients that are not her patients they're patients of the amc and so we have to recruit patients ourselves through the community and really our bread and butter has always been psychiatry so Normally, you don't want that situation where your PI is not the specialist of the studies that you do, but neurology and psych are close enough to where she's allowed to be PI by a lot of these sponsors just because she's been doing it so long. And now, as of 2020, we have an internal medicine doctor that does studies with us there too. So we started diversifying into um, some of the same studies I'm doing here in you with Yuma, actually. Interesting. Okay. So in your video, the one that I mentioned, you talk multiple times, you mention that the bottleneck in clinical research is happening with the patient recruitment side of things. And why I find this very interesting, what I think all of you listeners out there in biotech IQ land would, um, would find interesting is that, you know, usually I'm interviewing somebody on here that's talking about you know, what, what's the science of their company? What's the pipeline look like, right? Company culture, a biotech company itself. Um, like, because the bottleneck is happening with patient recruitment, I want to talk a little bit about that and maybe understand, yeah. like, how does patient recruitment happen? And what should these companies, these, these biotech pharma companies, like, what should they know that would help them be more successful with this, right? And in, in getting yes. patients into the studies and all of that. This is one this is one of the pillars of what my next decades, multiple decades, will be dedicated towards after I finish the growth phase of this site and then I either sell it or let someone run it. I'm seeing so many biotechs, small cap biotechs getting taken advantage of by CROs, by the big CROs, so the contract research organizations. Mm -hmm. Those are not sites. Those are CROs. Those are specialty companies that evolved since the 70s to assist drug companies with running their trials. I think the way tech is headed with e-source, e-reg, everything digitized, I and this is actually spearheaded in some respects by the CROs, but because they have to, um, but it's, it's been spearheaded by the tech vendors, like the giants in our industry, Viva 
Viva, um, Life Sciences, Metadata. Um, there's a bunch of tech companies in our space, a bunch of startups as well, where you don't necessarily need a CRO to do the same thing that the CRO was doing even five years ago, even 10 years ago. Why? For the thing you just mentioned, the bottom line is nothing's happening unless you get patients enrolled in your studies. Guess who doesn't do that? CROs. They have no power in whether patients get recruited in studies or not. They will sell that they do. They say, well, we have a trusted list of sites that we've developed strong relationships with over the past blah, blah, blah. It's not true. They use the same sites everyone else does. My site, Yuma Clinical Trials, we work with any CRO that will give us a study we like. We don't have relationships with them. <laughs> it's not like they, they, matter of fact, these CROs, what they'll do is they'll, they'll find a site and let's say they work with sponsor X for osteoarthritis. Perfect example. They'll find a site that does well for an OA study. And then they'll get us another sponsor, a competing sponsor saying, hey, we have an OA study. We heard that you guys are good at OA, OA studies. What that CRO will do, whether the sponsor found me or the CRO found me does not matter. We're in that CRO's database. Now the CRO will position my site as an asset for the new company, the new bio the new sponsor. So they don't even care. Like they're using your own assets against you in many ways. We have, we have um, a, a community-based clinician who sees sales reps every week, writes a lot of scripts, has good relationship with the medical science liaisons. And once they find out we do studies, the sponsors will give us studies. And the sponsor uses CROs for the most part. So when the what the sponsor is doing is they're 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 fast tracking us as a site to be used by the CRO for their study. So it's the sponsor's work that we're even doing this study. Okay. Now the CRO gets us, and now they can give us as an asset to the competitors of that sponsor and say, hey. This is part of our network is these sites, but they don't have any control over how we recruit. All they're doing is monitoring. All they're doing is making sure we're compliant with the protocol and managing all the multiple vendors. I really think with tech becoming more advanced and easier to use both for sites and for sponsors, you kind of eliminating the need for CRO. I don't think they'll ever go away. But the days of the CROs taking advantage of the small cap biotechs, I think are going to be gone because the the big pharma, everybody knows the big pharma, when they sign with a CRO, they already know this problem of the, the CRO workload for their staff. They're giving the A team to the big pharma. They know Pfizer, J&J, Boehringer, they sign like exclusive agreements like, hey, we will use you as the CRO for the study, but we want exclusive team, like your CRAs can't work for other, other sponsors. I think they call it like FSP model, functional service provider, where basically the CRA is like an employee of the CRO, but for all intents and purposes, they're basically working just for that big sponsor. Well, the small biotechs can't afford this. So who do they get? They end up getting like the C and the D team. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's, I didn't just discover this on accident. I've talked to multiple CEOs of biotechs that have complained about the same thing. So I really think like access to the sites, empowering the sites to do better sites, by the way, prefer working with, with the sponsors directly. Yeah. It's not like anyone really likes the heroes. So I think the next couple of decades, are really going to be interesting because I think a lot of these biotechs are going to figure out, Hey, we don't necessarily need, like we're wasting a lot of money on these CROs when we can kind of do it ourselves. I think they'll have like a team of consultants. And I think that's one of the things my company, like I'm going to start focusing on because 
we figure out the infrastructure that they need to run a simple trial and even a more complicated trial with tech, you may not necessarily need all the bells and whistles of the big zeros. Hmm. Interesting. Now, to play devil's advocate here, um, not necessarily devil's advocate, but to clarify here in, in, look, I try to be a little bit like, um, um, company type agnostic, I guess, is the way to put that. Cause I've heard, I've heard a lot of complaints about CRO for sure. I've had clients that are CROs though, that have used me to recruit, right. To, to fill certain contracts. They have turnover too. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. I've had, People that I've known that have gone to work for CROs that have said, yeah, I, um, get me out of here, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. um, and I've also, but I also do want to be fair to like those that are working and, and really trying to put like, put like a strong effort into their job at the CRO and, and trying to deliver true value to their clients. So for, for me to understand, I guess, is. So you're saying that there's 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 potential to streamline certain things or for biotech companies, sponsor companies, I'll say, to somehow do what needs to happen, like do internally what the CRO is doing. I mean, because what are they doing? Yeah. They're primarily doing like data capture, putting it all together in, in proper, like the way it's just supposed to be. And that's a key piece, right? Because data's king at the end of the day with your clinical trial, right? I mean, that's yeah. the whole purpose. It's getting the, the rubber on the road, as we talked about, the control site and getting the data and having that ready for reporting, right? So, I mean, then why won't, why don't most companies just do that already? Like what's holding them from doing that? Because they're afraid to, it's not their core competency. You know, most of these small cap biotechs, they start out science focused. They're all science focused. They might have a business person CEO that's brought on to quickly commercialize and get up to speed. And this clinical research is like something that they have to do to get from point A to point B. Well, most fail within that space or most run out of money within that bridge from point A to point B, specifically because of the big zeros. Uh, The big zeros, they don't take as good care of their small biotech clients as they do the bigger ones. And why should they? I mean, nine out of 10 of these small biotechs not going to be around in 10 years, but Pfizer, J&J, Boehringer, they're not going anywhere. So who, if you have two sets of customers, which one are you going to take more care of and like actually put your best assets on? It's well, I mean, yeah. to put them on the companies that you think are going to be around in the long run. Do all CROs do this? No, but the big ones have a reputation of doing this. Yeah. And every incentive in the world to do it. Well, I mean, it's like, um, I mean, you see it in every industry. Like I've got, uh, I have, I have some friends that work in banking and, and have made it pretty high up in some of the banks and, you know, at a retail level when they were at that stage of their career, you know, it was like, if someone came in and had a certain amount of assets that was, you know, not your average person, then, you know, they got, they got white glove treatment, right. They got treatment, you know, there was different, they gave them different service, right. Because they wanted to maintain that, that bank balance. If they've got a million dollars or more in the bank or something like that. Right. So I, I see that. I mean, it's, it's in every industry, I guess what I'm trying to focus in on though, is specifically like, how would you, how would you, like, what advice would you give to a company that let's say they're enrolling in studies now and they're struggling to get like enrollment, like, is there anything that those companies could do, like maybe reaching out directly to sites? I mean, is there, what, what would you suggest they do to try and make the, the patient recruitment piece more successful? The only thing they can do that's going to work is bring on rescue sites, but bring on the right rescue sites. And that's the problem is most of these, that's one of the problems. Most of these small biotechs, it might be their first trial or it might be like their first five trials. Even if you've done multiple trials, usually if you look at these biotech pipelines, they're in different therapeutic indications, right? So they'll take like the same compound and they'll have like different therapeutic indications. So in the real world, those are different specialists, different sites, more or less, right? So you need rescue sites that know what they're doing, that are not going to waste time uh, with their startup regulatory, that are going to get their training done quickly. It's a million bucks a day to run a study. 
So if you're bringing on a rescue site and the site's taking three months to get their startup regulatory going and a, a, a month to do their contract and budget and a month to get their vendors trained, um, you don't need that rescue site. That rescue site's a liability. That rescue site's costing you money. Even worse is going to an academic medical center as a rescue site. They're going to take like six to nine months for some of these things. So what do mm. they end up doing? They go to CROs and say, hey, we need more sites. And what do the CROs do? They can do a slightly better job of finding these sites, but only because in the land of the blind, he with one eye is king. It doesn't <laughs> mean they're actually doing a good job. And it doesn't mean it's a good ROI on on the shareholder money uh, that these biotechs are spending. I mean, a lot of times they're running on fumes. Mm. So I think in a as the world gets more decentralized, sites are, it's going to be easier to find sites because ideally networking is becoming easier. Uh, the tools to empower the sites to run their clinics better are there. They're already there you almost don't need to send monitors to monitor the sites in person with e-source and e-reg. You can do it remotely. So you have more control of it. A lot of this tech is putting the control back in the hands of the sponsors and the CROs they're forced to compete. So they have to adopt, like bring on their own tech to keep up. And then they're charging their own tech at a premium to the sponsors. Like they're charging it back. The sponsor can just buy this tech off the shelf and run it themselves for a fraction of the cost and partner with the right sites. So, yeah, I think that the way the CROs have grown and they've been incentivized to grow has been at the expense of many companies, even the big pharma, but definitely at the expense of the smaller biotechs. Interesting. Okay. Well, definitely sounds like a lot of innovation going on and and a lot of um, opportunity, I think. I mean, that's and that's an interesting aspect of this. So I do have one more question about patient recruitment, which is specifically as a site, how do you increase patient recruitment? So let's say you've got, you know, XYZ physician that's um, agreed, you know, let's say you got an internal medicine physician, they have agreed to be you know, the PI um, for you and your site, are they, you know, as patients come through, are they kind of looking and searching for certain criteria and be like, this patient could potentially be a good, a good fit. And then they're like approaching those people about it. Um, or how are you attracting patients to step in for studies? Primarily the best way is through the patient, the, the database of the PI. So if it's a private practice, the patients are already there coming in regularly for treatment from the doctor, right? So the site, the best sites are usually integrated within a private practice model and they're able to get patients. The problem is a lot of these studies are becoming more restrictive of like the, basically the inclusion exclusion criteria are becoming more stringent. So that could mean a number of things. One of the things it's translated into on our end is they're not necessarily looking for real world patients or they're looking for patients that are not under the best care. Um, take the example of, of a diabetic study we have. We have a lot of diabetes patients in our PI database. They see 50% of the patients they see are diabetic. Problem is they're under really good care. Like it's very rare to see their A1C super high like this study wants, this particular study. And on top of that, some of the other assays that they're running, they want them like way out of normal range. Mm. So these are not necessarily real world patients they're looking for. They're, they're basically looking for patients that are not being cared for properly. So in those cases, even the sites that have private practice need to go outside the community and recruit. So in small towns, what works is newspaper, social media, word of mouth. In bigger cities, it's a little bit harder. In bigger cities, um, you do have more people, so it kind of balances that off, but the attention span of the people is not there like it is in the smaller towns. So there's challenges regardless of the type of site, and part of, that part of those 
challenges are being um, expedited by more complex inclusion exclusion criteria, which I don't think that's going away. So really what's going to need to change is the way sites are empowered to recruit patients first from their own database and then from the community. Hmm. Interesting. So it sounds like it's a lot of traditional like ways of reaching people. I mean, not, not necessarily uncommon other than restrictions by like, you know, regulations and things of what you can say and how you can reach out to people. I'm sure, um, you know, very, very similar to what most businesses would probably do to market, to get a customer in the door. Yeah. I mean, it really is like interesting. Um, it's not complicated. It's just doing it, but that's much less effective than just marketing to your own private practice database. I see. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's shift the conversation. You you mentioned that you know you've got some ambitions, some goals, and things that you're working on right for the next few decades of your life, and uh, looking to to maybe shift out of out of the site ownership. Um, you know, for someone like me, who's actually kind of considering that right now, it makes me a little worried is <laughs> like, are you, are you like, why do you want to shift out of it? And, and what's, what's on the horizon for you? I've done this for going to be too, well, definitely when I'm done with this site over two decades and I've been getting reintroduced to my passion for the sciences, you know, like what's fundamental about all these sponsors it's boils down to science i mean we can get lost in all this tech and here's a strategy and here's a regulatory form and here's this and that but at the end of the day it's science and that's what initially attracted me to the medical field and it's kind of cool to head back in that direction and what what had a lot to do with that was the recent explosion of biotechs like in the last decade especially since covid like and i know they're going through a hard time now but there's a lot of interesting innovations coming out in oncology in immunotherapy and vaccine uh, there's just so much going on peptides monoclonal antibodies crispr you know there's so many things that went went pathway we're just discovering these things so it's not so much that it's not a good business to be in re in clinical research site owner i will still own sites i'm just not going to manage the day-to-day -day operations or definitely start from the ground ground zero again like on my own yeah um, i feel like this is something i need to do and it's it's i like to do and it's lined up with i think a decent value prop for small cap biotechs to consider mm. or even pre-public biotechs to consider like why are you using a CRO um, so I've kind of helped individuals figure out how to get into clinical research on their own right why not try to help biotechs figure out how to do research on their own as well I mean much more complex, but at the end of the day, principles are the same. Yeah. Well, interesting. I'll be excited to see what, what happens there. And you know, what else is interesting? You're talking about all these different innovative treatments. And uh, I had a most recent episode that came out on the podcast. I was talking with a company doing tunable radio pharmaceuticals. They're able to literally tune it. And um it, super interesting. And one thing that came up in that conversation, not the first time that I've had this conversation with somebody is combination therapies, right? For so long, for so long, so many people have always talked about the cure. We want the cure. We need the cure for cancer when, you know, or the cure for X. And the reality is it's a combination of things that's very likely going to be what helps people. I mean, you know, currently looking at, for example, oncology, which is an area a lot. Of, I've worked with a lot of oncology companies because they're the largest portion of the biotech market at this point. Um, and, you know, in oncology, it's like, for example, in some of these trials that they're doing, obviously they can't start with healthy volunteers, um, toxicity reasons uh, why, and the risk doesn't outweigh the benefit for someone that's not sick um, to test that. But like, they, in most cases, to get a patient in the door, they have to have exhausted 
all the 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 current standard uh, care that's available, uh, you know, standard of care that's available for them. And so you think about it from that perspective, like these people have likely gone through multiple treatments. Some have responded favorably, but then, you know, have taken a, you know, taken a downturn and now they're eligible for X treatment that's being tested currently. Right. And so com again, combination therapy um, and, you know, ways to extend life. Um, and, and then eventually I think I know I had another individual on the podcast. He's a trained oncologist currently the chief medical officer of a company developing um, uh, RAS treatment. And he believes that in the next decade or so, we're going to have some type of combination treatment to cure, cure cancer. And in some cases, we already have that depending on the cancer, how early you catch it, those kinds of things. You know, there are people that, that go into remission and, um, you know, live the rest of their life. So yeah. definitely a, a cool space, I think, um, to be in. Oh, combo therapy. Yeah. I mean, just look at immunotherapy and oncology, you know, you get, you got to worry about the cancer cell hiding its ability to mask. So checkpoint inhibitors, and then empowering the T cell to go find the target. Those things work best together. doesn't work for everybody. Um, there's some complex reasons behind that, but, and they're still trying to figure it out, but yeah, I think combo therapy actually for a, a, across a wide um spectrum of illnesses um also peptides which is the opposite end of that peptides are depends who you ask naturally occurring substances which may not may or may not be able to patent people are trying to figure it out but they're definitely showing promise and they're not going anywhere and there's tons of those i mean the, and then ai we haven't even talked about ai you know, the, mm -hmm. a lot of these biotech starting to partner with AIs on the drug discovery side. So I'd rather they spend their money there than spend their money on CRO. And there's like 80, uh, 10 to the power of 80 something small molecules that they haven't discovered, but they know are out there. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's crazy. For sure. Well, um, I would encourage all of, all of you listening, go, um, go check out Dan's channel. Definitely got some, some interesting things that he talks about in regards to the, to the, you know, rubber meeting the road, the clinical research sites. Um, and obviously as you can tell he's got a passion for biotech as well. Um, I have also multiple episodes out there where I've actually interviewed uh, the founders of a couple of different companies um, that are doing AI um, immunotherapy treatments um, rare, not just oncology, but in rare disease as well. Um, so, so go check, go check out Biotech IQ. Again, don't forget to you know like, subscribe, share. Um, before we jump on this podcast, I really appreciate your time on this, Dan. I want to talk about um, you know any books you might recommend. Obviously, we've got your book here, which I'm gonna read. We've got Comprehensive Guide to Clinical Research. Yeah. Um, which, hey, let's recommend yeah. that. But are there any other books that you read in 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 your life or career that you recommend? Yes. Uh, lately, it's been science focused. Uh, you may or may not, when you're watching this, I don't know when you're watching this in the future. I probably have a second book out, but I don't have a title for it yet. Um, but I've been focused on the science sciences recently. And the song of the cell just came out. Um, written by this oncologist, Siddhartha Muk Mukherjee. I probably butchering the name but he's actually pretty popular um it's basically the history of the cell and from human understanding till today and it is a really good overview of the complexity of the cells and the human body and life itself um I think anybody would get value from that especially if you're into the sciences if what's it called the, again uh, the Song of the Cell. The Song of the Cell. So uh, Siddhartha wrote The Emperor of All Maladies. That one too, yeah. That's Man, nice that's a great book. Yeah, that's a great book. This is his most recent one, I think. So that's I started with that one, and then I'm going to work my way backwards. I just discovered him. Yeah, very cool. Cool. Um, what advice would you give to – I'm going to ask two questions here in one. I tend to do that. What advice would you give an early clinic, like someone 
looking to get into owning a clinical research site? And what advice specifically would you give to a sponsor company who wants to, um, I know we talked a little bit about this, but who wants to, I guess, be more involved um, in finding clinical research sites? So the person wanting to start a research site, find a community that's preferably underserved. So have a large minority population, if you can. Diversity. Yes, that's underserved. The FDA mandating that we have more representation in trials. So that's a a no-brainer. Like you're working with regulations in your favor. Um, I think that's why we're doing relatively well in Yuma. We grow relatively fast compared to the average site. That's they have a big Latino population there. Oh yeah, huge. And there's no other site here either. The the only other site is the hospital that does oncology studies only. Um, and again, you know, these companies are moving away from academic medical centers or large hospital systems. Like they want faster, they want cheaper, they want better. And a lot of these academic and large hospital systems have gotten too big for their own good there's we can go off on a tangent and talk about the exodus from academia and how that's benefiting biotech and clinical research both uh, private industry but we won't we won't go into that and then um for sponsors so for biotech if you're a biotech especially a small let's say pre-public or just small cap the temptation is you've got so much to worry about mainly financing and raising money that you're going to buy whatever the CROs are selling. And okay, there's currently no real better alternative, but the tools are here to where you can almost take control of the situation yourself. And yes, you will have to like hire like a few people for this, like, but not a lot, like a dozen, maybe. Right. I think it's better ROI than outsourcing it all to a CRO. Hmm. And with things like LinkedIn, which is basically replacing like paying to go to conferences to know people, you go on LinkedIn, you follow topics, follow someone like me, follow people who follow me. These are people working at small CROs, independent consultants doing basically the function of what large CROs will do, learn from them, hire them on the side as consultants, and develop your own internal team to handle research. You'd be much better off going forward. You're probably going to save money. And if you do get something that's commercially viable and you can finance the next pipeline, You'll have the infrastructure in place and be further ahead than your competition. Um, and if you get acquired, I'm sure that's an asset the acquiring company will will like to have. Like, hey, we have our own internal. Okay, even though we're using uh, uh, CROs with our RFP models, um, or sorry, FSP. There's so many acronyms. In this yeah. <laughs> uh, that's something we might consider because I think even the big farm are considering that as well. So that's my advice to both of those stakeholders what um where can people find your book um i'm wondering if i could link it link it in the description here is it oh, being yeah. sold on, on amazon amazon yeah it's self-published yeah. very proud of that so the paperback is at the time of this video 33 bucks but the kindle is 390 or 299 and then um the audiobook is on audible I think the audiobook's the best because it's did like you, a podcast. Did you read it? Read it with the co-author and we paused like every paragraph and made a podcast episode. So it's like two books in one basically because ah. we read it and we talk about like as we're reading, like we share stories and anecdotes and it's the way I prefer to read a book um, or listen to a book is hearing from the author directly and then hearing like stories that feel like it's exclusive to that format so i don't know kind of want all three i guess yeah how's that for a sales pitch (laughs) (laughs) well i'll link it in the description here um and i'll link it on my website as well once i get your 
your uh your blog Thank post you. i'm going to do up yeah and and um we'll we'll go from there with that but uh again man it's great having you on the show um ha- happy to to do this collab with you i appreciate you reaching out back when you did and um you know dan's inspired me to uh to keep oh, my youtube man. channel going i, I got some work to on do. YouTube. yeah yeah i, got I was looking sure. i was looking for you know i'm really like heavy in this back to like what i should have learned what i should have paid attention to in college so i was looking i was like there's got to be somebody that's talking to biotechs on a regular and maybe it's not just about the science like maybe it's just interviewing the execs like there's so many angles of the biotechs there's the stock angle which is like a whole subgenre. there's the science angle there's what you focus on which is like the culture and the people the people and then i think where i can fit in is on on the research like the operations um and mixed with some science and some stock like there was nobody, man. Plenty of stocks, yes. But those guys are not loyal to any particular niche. They're just out there. If it's a penny yeah. stock, they're looking at the technical analysis. They're not talking about the science or like the core of what the biotech is. They could care less what it is. If they're like, like a, the top 10 biotech companies to invest in in 2023. And then they that's yeah, it. <laughs> and they trade yeah. them the same as they would a crypto or, I mean, the techniques are the same. So there was something lacking. And yours i've spent hours looking actually and <laughs> yours was like the only channel i found and i was like hey i gotta start interviewing more biotech ceos too <laughs> <laughs> yeah i um you know for those of you that have watched some of the episodes i ran into you know a bit of challenges trying to trying to handle everything that i'm doing and as a professional recruiter like that's my main business and i spent a lot of time last year over the last couple of years i spent um, a lot of time. And, you know, part of the challenge is geographic location. I mean, I'm in Utah. Um, so I've got to travel to do these videos. Tell by the hat. I was like, yeah, it's gotta be Utah jazz. Yeah. Utah jazz hat. Um, you know, I grew, I grew up in California for those of you that, that may not know, I grew up in central California actually. Um, and my, my dad was not a big sports fan, so I was never really loyal 49ers though. San Francisco 49ers. That was my football team growing up. Yeah. Yeah. So, (laughs) uh, but anyway, yeah. So um, we got more coming. I've got some, some cool ideas and things I want to push with. And uh, again, Dan, thanks for being on the show. So, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, nice to meet the viewers and listeners. Yeah. All right, man. We'll see you on the next one. Catch you later.